I bring you warm greetings from Redcliffe College, where I'm teaching. It's a mission training center. We have about 97 students from 28 nationalities. And all the students who come is seeking to serve God in, in mission. And I brought some uh, leaflets if you'd like to know a little bit more about the college and the programs that's available. Uh, we have short courses from six weeks to a year to three years up to a master's degree, and that's available downstairs. Today we are going to look at God's Word, and I'll be reading from a familiar passage. If you have your Bible, we will turn to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. And if I may read verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let us pray. Father, we come to worship you as a God of all nations, a God of Abraham in his calling. And a God of the church today, as you send us into the world to be your instruments of building your kingdom. Today, Lord, as we come in our own needs, wherever we are, in our own stages of struggles spiritually, in times of joy, in times of difficulty, may we learn to get a glimpse of this God of Abraham and make him our own personal Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will turn to our first slide here in Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, normally, my preference is to preach through an exposition of a text. But maybe for this Sunday, because it's a mission Sunday, I'm just giving you some uh, broad uh, pointers of Genesis 1 to 11, which is the stories of Adam and Eve, Noah and Abraham. There's a professor who I studied in the Old Testament called Bruce Walkie, and he wrote a, a commentary on the book of Genesis, and I would commend that book to you. And uh, Walkie basically said that we can't read Genesis 1 to 11 in isolation in individual stories, but to read, read that in its context of Genesis 1 to 11. Uh, 
And a particular theme that Rocky says that in these uh, 11 chapters is the themes of sin, judgment, and salvation. So, for example, Rocky says that in, we began with the story of Adam and Eve, where Adam was created to be the crown of creation, to have dominion over the whole earth. And yet Adam and Eve rebel against God. There is sin. Wherever there is sin, there comes judgment. So God banished them out of the Garden of Eden. And yet, in the midst of judgment, there is salvation. So in Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife to clothe them. So Walkie says that the theme of sacrifice is an important theme in the Old Testament. And it reminds us of this very nature of God. That whenever there is sin, there is judgment. But whenever there is judgment, in the midst of judgment, there is salvation. And we don't have time to look at all the details, but you can trace this theme. For example, in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain murdered his brother Abel, and then whenever there is sin, there is judgment. Cain was made to be a restless wanderer. And in the midst of that judgment, God provided this mark on Cain's forehead to protect him. So there is salvation for Cain. And if we think that sin, out of our recipients of God's mercy, we would come back to God, we find that the story of Genesis, that sin is no longer confined within the family, but now it moves into structural evil, into society. Where by the time of Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become. So sin now moves out into society. And whenever there is sin, there is judgment. And yet in the midst of judgment, God preserved Noah, who found favor in the Lord. And the climax of Genesis 1 to 11 is in that familiar story of the Tower of Babel where humanity came together to build for ourselves a city, build a name unto ourselves. And yet we find that whenever there is sin, God dispersed this nation, ethnicity and warfare began. And yet in the midst of that judgment, God preserved Abraham to be an instrument of salvation. So we find that this theme continued in the history of Israel in the sense that Israel, out of Abraham, we have the nation Israel. Israel was called to be a light among the Gentiles. And yet Israel failed when Israel began to think that because we have been called by God, we are his chosen race. Israel failed in her mission. And Jesus called that 12 disciples, that this new church, the new Israel, we today, is to be this same light among the Gentiles. Now, how is that in the history of modern Christian mission? We look at the next slide here, and we think about this historic city. I'm very conscious that I come 
to this church with a great history, a great cloud of witnesses, and a history of mission of faithful men and women who out of Edinburgh have you have sent out your sons and daughters into all the worlds. And I, I think in Edinburgh 1910, as some of you would know, that great missionary conference where Christianity really was centered in Europe. And we are all making, in the mission uh, community, we all are making plans for the year 2010 to remember of this radical change in Christian mission. The history of mission out of Edinburgh, out of Europe, and today we are witnessing in our lifetime where I am taking the theme here on my uh, sermon title, The Shift of World Christianity Since Edinburgh 1910. And I commend to you a study by a professor of history, and some of you may know Andrew Walls, and this particular statement that Walls said about Christian expansion is that Christian expansion is serial, not progressive. Walls said that when you think about uh, Islamic expansion, Islamic expansion is progressive. Out of Mecca, it moves to Asia Minor, where the Apostle Paul used to serve in modern Turkey, Iran, Iraq. This used to be the center of Christianity. But Islam, whenever it moves to a new community or territory, they generally remain Islamic until today. Mecca remains the center of Islam. Christianity, the Christian expansion, is unlike Islamic expansion in the sense that Jerusalem or Iran, Iraq or Turkey, the land of Ephesus, Laodicea, are no longer the land of Christianity. There is something about the nature of this serial expansion where Christianity sometimes wither in its very heartland and yet it flowers anew in the periphery in different centers. So Wall said that at different periods of the world, the nature of Christian mission it seems to move into different center. And we all know uh, here the 20th century in our lifetime that we witness the greatest recession of Christianity in the Western world and the greatest expansion of Christianity in the two-thirds world. You know, we, we sometimes seldom realize that Christians who are living in this 21st century, we are living in the most radical shift of Christianity from the north to the south, from the west to the east. I was privileged to be in a conference with Andrew Walls and remember distinctly a particular question that people who were, this was in, in, in Vancouver where I used to be a student, and they were asking him, about why is it that Christianity declined in Europe? Because for hundreds of years, this is the land of John Knox. This is the land of great revival. Out of Europe, 
that we have sent out missionaries. And Walls made this uh, pity statement that Christianity exists and lives through the crossing of cultural frontiers. So you are familiar with Edinburgh, the center for the study of non-Western Christianity, and many PhD students devoted their time looking at why is it that Christianity is really growing in the non-Western world? And why is it that Christianity seems to have declined in Europe? And maybe a little bit of that insight. Now, that may be an oversimplification of all these studies that have gone on. But let us remind ourselves that the very nature of Christian gospel is that it is not to be confined to one country, to one culture. It is not a monopoly that we have. And whenever a church builds bigger and bigger cathedral, whenever all our resources, the offerings, the people, the prayers, whenever it is located into one community, then the very nature of Christianity is that it will with us. It is a bit like my uncle who has a kidney problem that he regularly has to go to this dialysis, uh, that he thrives when there is this kind of exchange of blood. And that is part of the challenge for us. Look at the next slide. When we think about the trends in global Christianity, and just trying to grasp what on earth is God doing in our lifetime. About 100 years ago, in 1900, 17% of the total Christian population in the world lives in the non-Western world. By mid-2007, 62% of the total Christian population lives in the non-Western world, rising to 70% by 2025. In 1900, Europe was home to two-thirds of the Christian population. Today, the figure is less than 25% and is projected to be less than 20% by 2025. And the source is from World Christian Encyclopedia. You know, when we think about the Lord's word in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. It will not overcome it. Sometimes, I think we may uh, be bound to question these words. If we live in Europe, if we look at the church just within our locality, our township, or even our country, there is a great danger for Christians in the West to be very skeptical about the power of the Christian gospel. We see atheism, secularism, a disdain, even sometimes within Christians, that in many churches today, we question this reality of Jesus' statement. But if, if we begin to look at the world and look at the church in its entirety, then Christianity really has not declined, except God has come and removed that golden lampstand sometime from one locality to the next. And this is the subject that we need to reflect in Christian mission. That there is a danger 
that we do not see God at work. And I want to dedicate this sermon in some sense to many of you because some of you have given your prayer life for Asia for many years. And it is in your lifetime, almost like that prophet Simeon looking for that coming Messiah, that in your lifetime, God has fulfilled your prayers. Some of you have given a large part of your adult life serving in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. And we must not be overly discouraged because the church is a church within the world. And we must take encouragement in a sense of submission to God. And let's look at this next slide, the next Christendom. There's tremendous challenge for us in this world as Christians in the 21st century. But in 2050, six countries, Brazil, Mexico, the Philippines, Nigeria, Congo, and the United States, will each have at least 100 million Christians. The great majority of Southern Christians, and increasingly of all Christians really, are the poor, the hungry, the persecuted, even the dehumanized. And this is the fellow Christians that we have today. Most of them are in the South, and the great majority of them belongs to the poor community and sometimes who are persecuted. Two days ago, I received the sad news of the passing away of Dr. James Hudson Taylor III, the great-grandson of Hudson Taylor, as many of you may be aware of, the founder of China Inland Mission. My wife and I had a great privilege to work with them. I've traveled to many times taking meetings with Taylor, Dr. Taylor, and he, at the age of 80 years old, uh, passed away. But he gave his life for the Chinese people. And he is so loving through his modeling. And towards the end, he's, he realized that really he, he has seen the growth of the Chinese church. Despite persecution, despite the strength of communism, we find that the church in China continue to grow. And this is something that we can thank God for. In the next slide, and we won't have time to look, to, uh, let's look at, this is a book called The Next Christendom, but let's look at the next slide, Believing the Bible. That in the present day, we have this sense of the new churches, that the Bible is read with authenticity and immediacy. And to some extent that whether we are willing that the church in Europe to give priority to the southern voices. Now I realize that may not be a problem in a church like this, where we believe in the Bible and that we are conscious of God in his multi-nations and multi-theology. But there are many in the church, say in the Anglican church or in many uh, debates today, whose theology, whose Bible, who has this uh, priority of reading? Are we willing to read the Bible with new eyes, to be learning from these Asian theologians, African theologians, as they read the Bible? Or are we reading the Bible with skepticism, deeply influenced by enlightenment thinking, 
when we read about spiritual warfare, when we read about Jesus and his work, uh, sometimes we bring with us our context and our biases. And I think the next Christendom and the growth of a church really is to allow these different voices. Are we, for example, in the next 10 years to see that within the church here, to find that the church leadership is beginning to be filled with leadership from East and West, from African leadership, Asian leadership, within one new humanity, and we can celebrate this new Christendom. Let us turn back to the next uh, uh, slide. Sorry, the, the next slide on the paganization of the church. Looking back at the lesson of history, where Brunner said, uh, wrote this statement in 1934, the danger of paganism which menaces the church could well be mortal. The church has welcomed into its practices and doctrines so many pagan elements, which are radically irreconcilable with the Christian faith, such that expressions of the true life of the church have or almost disappear. Brunner was writing in 1930s, and he is a prophet of his times. And as he looked at the danger of Christianity in the West, he identified four features of a pagan church. He said, one, the absence of community. Second, the partial conversion of Christians. Third, the religious devotion of passionless duty. Fourthly, the loss of confidence in God. So Brunner, while seeing that the church have grown in numbers, recognizes the danger of nominalism. And the challenge it is for us, not just to be contented with a form of Christianity, but really to experience true community, to challenge ourselves that it is not enough to call him Lord in worship, but that he must be Lord of all of our lives. And of great danger that as we serve in the different services, whether in the sound system, in youth ministry, in leading worship, the danger of religion becoming a passionless duty. There is a story that was told that when you go to heaven, that this young man discovered that in heaven, uh, that this angel is going to ask all the church people, during your earthly life, those of you who are afraid of your wives, this is Mother's Day, you stand on this side. And those of you who are not afraid of your wives, you stand on this side. And to their horror, all of us, the church at Charlotte community, found that the leaders of the church and the elders of the church, all afraid of their wives, they all st stood on this side. Except these new youth, timid pastor, young youth pastor, who was standing on this side. And they all were so amazed. At the end of the service, all the church elders, the pastors, they all came to this youth pastor and said, what is your secret? Is it that you are not afraid of your wives? 
He says, my, 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 my wife asked me to stand on this side. <laughs> now, that may not relate very much to your family life on this Mother's Day. And, but really, I think, uh, who is your boss? Who is the Lord? And we have, Derek and myself have a, a friend uh, called Bel Magalek, and Bel Magalek used to tell us that in our family, the man is the head of the house. We used to make the pronouncement on all the international policies, economic policies, is the man's role. The wife's role, a typical Filipino, she only makes minor decisions. Who, who cook, who does the ironing, who does the house duty, and you can tell who's the real boss at home. But I think it is a challenge for us as we think about the future of Christianity, and we come now to our last slide. I think there's a danger for Asian and African Christians to think that because the church is growing in the non-Western world, we are now the leader of Christianity because that is not true. For example, Asia is still the least evangelized region in the world. So this presentation about the shift of Christianity is not to say then we don't need to send out missionaries or we don't need to support our mission families who are working in the non-Western world. Something has changed, but yet Asia is still the least evangelized region. I grew up in a Buddhist family, and we think about Asia in terms of the challenge of Buddhism. I grew up in Malaysia, although in the Buddhist family, but in a Muslim context where there's still tremendous restriction. Maybe 99% of the Malay people in Malaysia are still Muslims. In the last week, I'm working with uh, a Muslim girl who was converted in, in UK and who's preparing to go back to Malaysia. And that's very difficult for her to be a Christian in Malaysia. The resources are still in the north. And we're not just talking about money. We're talking about the heritage that you have in terms of three or four generations of Christians. Many of us are first-generation Christians. We do not know, to some extent, we don't have that model of grandparents, parents, and the first generation. In many of our tribal communities, we find that the second generation are no longer Christians. So we need this new partnership in terms of the future of Christianity. In another context, I was listening to this statement by John Stott, and he made this statement that stayed with me. John Stott stated that despite the growth of Christianity in the non-Western world, growth without death is not pleasing to God. So it's no good to have big numbers. In, like in East Malaysia, we now have almost 40% of the people in East Malaysia claim to be Christians. 50 years ago, less than 1%. And it's in our lifetime. We see this rapid growth and shift of Christianity. Likewise, in Africa, many parts of Africa where we find churches that are growing. But growth without depth is not pleasing to God. The quality of the next century, 22nd century Christianity, 
is dependent on how non-Western Christianities develop in this century. We now live in this paradoxical legacy of a post-Christian West and a post-Western Christianity. Let us close with two simple lessons. We must bow down to worship a sovereign God. He built his church. He has his prerogative where he places his golden lampstand. We can only acknowledge that he has his own purposes. But secondly, we need to then recognize that there is a changing demography and a changing dynamics of mission. No longer are we sending out missionaries to be leaders, but in many of this non-Western Christianity, there's a growing, maturing church. And they too must be encouraged to follow in the history of Edinburgh 1910. They need to take on that mantle. They need to find that challenge to re-evangelize the West. We need to welcome in the Western Christianity this new teachings and leadership within our churches, within our theology, to read books and to begin to celebrate that God of all and many nations who called Abraham in the early days, but the church today is from everywhere to everywhere. And it is out of this partnership that we can take on the mission into the 22nd century. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this church. And I think of individuals and families in this church who have given their sons and daughters, who have prayed and supported missionaries over the last 200 years in the history of this church. Lord, we are concerned for the state of Christianity in Europe. And yet we lift up our eyes to look at you as a God who is bigger than our minds can comprehend. We worship you as a living God, a God of many nations. And we pray that we will move out of this service today with a renewed confidence in the Bible, a simple faith in the power of the Christian gospel to continue to touch lives, transform societies. And we long for the day that Christians and missions from Africa, from Asia, will lift up their eyes and see their own role out of a deep sense of gratitude to the Christian heritage in Europe to come and also serve in Europe and re-evangelize the Western world. For we pray this in Jesus' name.